at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, there was this British author uh, called Kenneth Graham, and he, he wrote a number of pieces. Uh, but one of the books that he wrote is called uh, Wind in the Willows. Has anyone ever heard of the book Wind in the Willows? A couple of you are gracious enough not to be too cool and to stick your hands up. Uh, so in the uh, book of the Wind of the Willows, uh, there's a famous chaotic character. Anyone know his name? The guy that drives the story forward and uh, Toady, yes. So the infamous Mr Toad. And Mr Toad was apparently based on the author's son because he was sort of chaotic, headstrong, never listened to anyone and did his own thing. Um, and uh, uh, so when I read The uh, Wind in the Willows, it adds an extra depth to it. Um, anyway, he takes this chaotic, headstrong, never listening to anyone character, Mr. Toad, and he puts him in this serene riverbank scenario. It's a, it's a scene that the, the author grew up with. Uh, his uncle was a pastor, and he sort of uh, led him through the, the, the sort of, uh, uh, just by the Thames, and taught him to sort of love this sort of peaceful, uh, uh, natural surroundings. Um, and, and so we have... Toad causing chaos amongst all these river creatures. Um, but this morning, I, I, I want to look at a part that I really didn't recognise was there. And um, if you'd like to open your copies of Wind in the Willows... To, no? No one else has got a copy? OK, well, I'll read mine and you can listen. It says this. So uh, you have uh, Rat and Mole hanging out. You know, they're, they're, they're good friends. And it goes there. Um, and it goes there. Um, trembling, Mole obeyed, and he raised his humble head. And then, in that utter clearness of the imminent dawn, while nature, flushed with fullness of incredible colour, seemed to hold her breath for the event, he looked into the very eyes of the piper of the gates of dawn, of the friend, the helper, he saw the backward sweep of the curved horns, the gleaming in the daylight. He saw the stern, hooked nose between the kindly eyes that were looking down on them humorously. While the bearded mouth broke into a half-smile at the corners, he saw the rippling muscles on the arm that lay across the broad chest. The long, supple hand still held the panpipes, only just fallen away from the parted lips. And he saw the curved... Uh, splendid curves of the shaggy limbs disposed in majestic ease on the sward. He saw, last of all, nestling between his very hooves, sleeping soundly in entire peace, the little round, podgy, childish form of the lost baby otter. All of this he saw for one moment, breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky, and still as he looked, he lived, and still as he lived, he wondered. Rat, he found, breath to whisper, are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, and his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, Mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. Sudden and magnificent, the sun's broad golden disc showed itself over the horizon facing them, and the first ray shooting across the level water meadows took the animals full in the eyes and dazzled them. When they were able to look once more, the vision had vanished, and the air was full of the carol of birds, and it hailed the dawn. The author, Kenneth Graham, has rat and mole encounter 
this mysterious character in the depths of the woods. You don't have to know much about Greek mythology to recognize there is a very familiar character in the middle here. This is the Greek god uh, known as Pan. And he was worshipped all over the Mediterranean. Uh, wherever there was a secluded spot or a hidden place, this Pan, this demigod of nature, was uh, revered and prayed to. Now, north of the Sea of Galilee in Israel, there's a region known as the Golan Heights. And in the Golan Heights, there is such a secluded and peaceful spot. There is a natural spring and it has bubbled up into a little cave. And as the spring bubbles up into the cave, the water comes out of the cave into this cascading waterfall. And you can go there today and you will find shrines and niches in honour of the pan of uh, the Greek god Pan, and there are other deities worshipped as well. It's kind of a uh, a sort of a pagan spot of worship and adoration. In that very same spot where this shrine, where these shrines to Pan exist, Herod the Great's son built a city. It's a city known as Caesarea Philippi. It filled with not just worship of Pan, but it filled with worship to Baal and to worship of Caesar as well. It became a place uh, that had a broad spectrum of different worshippers. And it was so, it was a place in Jesus' time of idol worship, of sacred inscriptions, of offerings, of a whole range of fantastic moments of worship in ignorance. It was a pagan place filled with confusion and competing faiths and practices. And this morning we're going to read from a moment that happens there. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. I really wanted to fill out this strange place that Jesus takes his disciples to make an incredibly important uh, moment. It says this in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, and I want you to imagine this is the city. It's not a uh, scene of the Jewish temple. It's not a scene where there's Pharisees and uh, Sadducees. It's not a scene where there's loads of religious Jews. It is a scene of pagans, a scene of all sorts of other different religions. And it goes on. And he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And his disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. 
And Jesus, it doesn't say smiled, but I think he probably did. Jesus smiled and replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but to my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, they will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom and heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Jesus seems to take them deliberately outside the, the place of religious orthodoxy. He seems to take them outside where all the uh, religious Jews were making clear ideas as to who they thought Jesus was. And he takes them out there into this pantheistic landscape where lots of different gods were followed. And I think what Jesus is doing in, as he takes them out here, it's an attempt by Jesus to say, you need to think in bigger terms than just the small picture the Jews have for who I am. I haven't come just to save the Jews. I haven't come just to fulfill a little religious cult on the outskirts uh, of society. I have come to meet all the misled cries, all the forlorn hopes, all the lost needs of these people that are worshipping Pan and Baal and Caesar and I am someone new and unique and you will never encounter someone like me again. Now, the words of Jesus, they are really rich. Um, I've, I really uh, enjoyed sort of uh, looking at all sorts of uh, uh, different um, offshoots of this. And, and, um, and I think uh, we could explore lots of different things. But um, I'm going to try and nail it down so that uh, it's something to remember. So... In Malachi, so Malachi is the last uh, book of the Old Testament in your scriptures. If you kind of turn like one way uh, to the left from Matthew, you should find uh, the last bit of Malachi. And so we have this bit uh, in the Old Testament, this, this last of the minor prophets in a scripture. And it ends with a word about the end of the world. It ends with a word of how all things are going to come together, of how God is going to fulfill his purposes on earth. And it says Malachi prophesied that it will involve someone called Elijah. Everyone say Elijah. Elijah. Now, Elijah is an Old Testament character. We know uh, him doing some incredible things. He uh, uh, sort of makes fun of the Baal prophets and he goes up to heaven in a chariot of fire uh, and he commissions his, uh, his uh, sort of learner uh, prophet, Elisha. Uh, he does some incredible things. He's a real fiery prophet that if you are a kid reading the Bible, you're like, I want church to be a bit more like that and a little bit less sort of a weak need and polite and cucumber sandwiches. And so you have this Elijah, and Malachi promises that Elijah is going to kind of somehow facilitate the end of the world. 
And over the years, the Jews got quite excited about this. They oh, there's this Elijah coming. And, and when he comes, it's going to be like the end of the world. And, and things are going to change. And, you know, all God's purposes are going to come together. And all this groaning we feel in our souls is going to be answered. And, and so the Jews, uh, bless them, they, they, they um, became more and more elaborate in their speculation. They become more and more energetic in their different ideas and brainstorming as to what Elijah in the end of the world would be and what this apocalypse was going to look like. And by the time it got to Jesus's time in, in sort of 2,000 years ago, it seems to have been a fever pitch. Everyone was all about the end of the world and what prophets were going to be and how it was going to look like. And so there was that anticipation and, and, and sense of climax. And uh, we have uh, various different references, uh, both in scripture and outside, um, just for simplicity sake, uh, Acts 21 talks about some sort of Egyptian uh, Messiah, sort of leading people out into the desert. Um, if you are familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which provides us all sorts of confirmation over the scriptures that we love today, um, they were a similar sect of the time that had this heightened sense of the apocalypse and the end of the world. And so the rabbis, the teachers of the time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Essenes, which is this Dead Sea Scroll community, they loved to guess and gossip about the end of the world. And they speculated wildly and they all had their own ideas and their own timelines and their own uh, uh, projections over what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. And in this midst of this furious speculation, Jesus does something quite disarming. He calls himself the Son of Man. And this was not a term that any of these different people that speculated used. No one talked about the Son of Man and the end of the world. It was all uh, Elijah and uh, the son of David, and, and, and all these other characters from the Old Testament. And then Jesus calls himself the son of man. And it's a neutral term, and it isn't laden with any expectation. It's kind of, it undermines all these different speculations as to what the end of the world uh, was. And it doesn't have a crackpot idea associated with it. And so Jesus calls himself son of man, and everyone goes, wait, who's that? That, that's not in my timeline, mate. I, who, who are you talking about when you're talking about the Son of Man? And Jesus chooses this name for himself from the book of Daniel that no one else had kind of grasped and run with. And it was a term that he could feel with himself rather than other people project onto. Because, you know, often uh, they thought the Messiah was going to kick out the Romans and create a world empire uh, in Israel or, or something similar. And, and, and Jesus kind of undermines that and says, I'm going to choose for myself a biblical title that you haven't got hold of and, and filled with your own ideas. Because Jesus knew all their ideas were ultimately inadequate to uh, represent what God was going to do. God was going to do something more marvellous than they could think or imagine. God's plan of salvation was far bigger than they dared think of. It was going to touch every tribe and tongue. It was going to touch every worshipper of 
Pan, every Druid, uh, every uh, 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 pagan idolatry. It was going to touch them all. And he needed a title that was going to uh, be so expansive. And, and so he chooses for himself this uh, uh, title from Daniel chapter 7. And uh, uh, it's very clear once you read it, but the, but the Jews hadn't quite cottoned on. And so he removes himself from the wild speculation of the day. And he says, right, okay. My friends, my disciples, you know what people say. You have been surrounded by all the Jews speculating who I am. And he asks, so, my disciples, what are people saying about me? Who do they say I am? And the disciples are quite methodical. They go back and list the Jewish shops, and they go, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. And some say you're another Old Testament prophet. There was this expectation that uh, uh, this individual that was going to facilitate the end of the world, and they had these different names uh, for him. And so some thought this was John the Baptist, this renegade speaker on the outskirts of society who was expecting the end and baptising people and calling the religious elite, you, you snakes and vipers. They were like, this is who you are. Others thought that Jesus' ministry was more like Elijah. You know, he was going to come in and bring reconciliation between people. He was going to mend divisions and cause the tribes of, Jew, uh, of the Jews to come together and be this great world power again. Still others thought this was Jeremiah. This is the fearless prophet who spoke against the corruption of the time uh, and he was despised and rejected by the status quo. And they were like, Jesus, you're like that. And all these different ideas have, uh, um, have, have accumulated during Jesus' ministry. He's done all these miracles, spoken all this wisdom, and all these different people say, well, he's Elijah, he's Jeremiah, he's John the Baptist, he's another uh, Old Testament prophet, because no one could say that he was simply a fake or a nut job because his words and his ministry was too powerful, uh, uh, too godly, and, and too wonderful to just simply dismiss. And people, instead of dismissing him, tried to pigeonhole him instead. They go, oh, he's Elijah, he's Jeremiah, he's John the Baptist. Put him in their own character and go, oh, Jesus, you're this. And this is true today. There are very few ignorant enough to say that Jesus is a fairy story. The, the, the evidence and uh, the stories uh, are, are too widespread for Jesus to be a figment of someone's imagination. However, Phil, folks will look at Jesus and they will read into him something safe and easy for themselves. They will say, oh, he's an activist. Or he's a, he's a politician, or he's a guru, or he's a military leader, or he's something else ordinary and palatable. And, and this is the pigeonhole I'm going to put him in. And it's exactly what they did to Jesus' day. They just tried, oh, he, he's that, and relegated him something less than he was meant to be. I want you to be very clear this morning that 
And we've been looking at a range of different questions that God asks people through scripture. This is the most important question in the world. There's no other question more important than the question that Jesus asks in Matthew 16. It is it's almost the whole rationale behind this series. And maybe I peaked too soon to bring it so early. It is the question which Matthew bends his whole story. The whole gospel of Matthew is bent on this one question. Who is Jesus? Who we say Jesus is, is the biggest deal. It reveals everything about you. And so Jesus says, who do they say I am? And the disciples list these different contemporary options. But Jesus hasn't finished yet. Jesus turns up the pressure. You know, he is a teacher that wants them to reach the heights of what God has in store for them. And he turns up the pressure, turns up the heat and says, right, okay. My friends, my disciples, you who know me best, you who have lived with me, you have eaten with me, you have slept alongside me, you have known in my darkest days and my brightest hours, you who know me so well, I want you to name me now. And it's an incredible moment of crisis and climax. Jesus suddenly is the test. It's the test. It's the moment that he has been leading his disciples to. He goes, I've shown myself to you more completely than anyone else. Jesus is being utterly vulnerable. He's saying, who do you think I am? There's nothing I've hidden from you. It's a moment of hope, a moment of vulnerability, a moment of faith and possibility. Jesus is inviting the disciples in to walk into a moment they will never walk back from. And it's a moment where you can imagine Jesus is uh, is mind going, come on guys, come through for me. This is it. This is the most important question you will face. What is your answer going to be today? Now, Peter does not know everything. He will make mistakes as to Jesus' identity in the future. He will cock up as to who Jesus is in the future. However, in this most beautiful moment, in the most beautiful moment, he pulls it out of the bag and he says, Jesus, you are the person sent by God to change everything. You are God's anointed one. You are God's son and uh, there is none like you. And you can imagine Jesus going, finally. Peter didn't spend years at university. He hadn't studied expansively all the Jewish scriptures. He wasn't an expert uh, in the Torah uh, and all the other uh, rabbi writings. He wasn't really good at doing his homework and he hadn't swatted up for this question that Jesus suddenly uh, unleashed on him. He hadn't copied public opinion which is a bit of a challenge, isn't it? He hadn't agreed with what everyone else said. 
He hadn't given in to the experts and all the people that thought they knew it all. And he hadn't even made a wild guess, you know, like a shot in the dark, like some of my kids do when they're at school and they haven't, uh, uh, um, haven't swatted for the exam. Peter says out loud what God has spoken to in his heart. Peter says with words what God has placed in his inner being. It is pure, unadulterated, divine revelation. Now, that is a bit to get excited about. I would imagine Jesus was very relieved that Peter had come up with a good answer to this question. But I don't want you to miss what comes next. Because it is actually quite cool. Because it's easy to miss a growing crescendo that comes after it. Because following this uh, announcement, following uh, this uh, word of Peter uh, to, to proclaim who Jesus is, something else happens. And so Jesus says, oh, you're Simon. Everyone knows this is Simon. He grew up with the name Simon. It was, just, it was the name his mum and dad gave him. And he goes, and your biological dad is Jonah. And Simon's like, well, I know this. I know who I am and who my dad was. And then all the other disciples go, well, we know this is Simon, and he's son of Jonah, that you're not some sort of great teacher for coming up with that one, Jesus. But he moves on. He says, Simon, you're Peter. Rock. And not only are your, uh, what you're known by is going to change, but you have listened to your heavenly father. You're a biological son of Jonah, but you have listened to your heavenly father. And there's this beautiful contrast between Peter's uh, physical circumstances and this spiritual new reality that he's entering. He was Simon, son of Jonah, but now he's Peter and, he's got, and his heavenly father is up in heaven. And there's this wonderful sense of escalation. Peter has said out loud what God has put in his heart. And Jesus says, what we have here is a transformation from the ordinary to the supernatural. A transformation from the ordinary to something extraordinary. And then Jesus says something that, to be fair, Christians have argued about for 2,000 years. But whatever your own interpretation of this particular verse is. Jesus makes very clear that this guy, who's not an expert in Jewish law, he says, you are going to become a player in the new spiritual community that's coming. There is a new spiritual community that I am going to bring about that is going to be called my church, and you are going to have a prominence in it uh, that is going to be above and beyond your qualifications. He says, you know what, Peter, you are going to announce the gospel. You are going to tell people about me. And you know what? The gates of Hades, the, defi uh, uh, the boundaries of death and hell, they're going to be pushed back as you pronounce life. As you talk about me, the boundaries of what Satan has is going to be pushed back as lives are changed and people become Christians and devote themselves to me. You are going to be part of this 
epic advancement of the kingdom. People will come to life. They were dead and now they're alive. They were lost and now they're fine. They were blind but now they see. And you have this enormous crescendo of just from this simple revelation to God going, and Peter, you're going to see lives saved and it's going to be a beautiful thing. And there is even more because you know what? Peter doesn't just preach. Right at the beginning of Acts, we find Peter making all sorts of important decisions. There is um, there's this question at the beginning of Acts, what do you do with the Gentiles? Do they have to become Jews to become Christians? Do they have to get circumcised to become Christians? Do they have to fulfill all the Old Testament law to become Christians? Is Christianity like an addendum to uh, the Jewish faith? And Peter realises no. And all the male Gentile Christians say, hallelujah. And uh, all Gentile Christians who don't really fancy doing all the minute stuff found in the Old Testament, we say, thank you, Peter, for saying out loud what we all knew in our hearts. And so Peter declares later on that the Gentiles are welcomed in to the Christian church alongside the Jews, that they're no different, that they're brought together by Jesus. And I wonder if there was a contrast and an invite, because do you remember where they are? They're in Caesarea Philippi. They're surrounded by all these pagans. They're surrounded by all these people looking at all sorts of deities that their parents told them are real. They are looking at inscriptions of Pan and Baal and Caesar, and they're looking for answers to them. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to welcome in these guys. You're going to say Gentiles can become Christians without any cultic practices, without any sacrifices, without uh, any circumcision. And suddenly the whole world rejoices that Peter says, I know who you are, Jesus. And so inevitably, I really hope this is how your mind works. The question moves away from what people said in the first century, moves away from what Peter and the disciples said, even. And we, each of us, need to be confronted with this question. Who do we think Jesus is? Who is Jesus to us? There is a maelstrom of different opinions. There is almost every imaginable idea out there as to who Jesus is. If you want to make him uh, an alien, and I've met, I've uh, done outreach in Bubush and sat down with this guy who took one of our Christmas invites in, and he was convinced Jesus was an extraterrestrial. There are people that think he was some sort of uh, yoga instructor, some sort of activist, some sort of hippie, and uh, everyone projects onto Jesus their own idea, something that they're comfortable with and suits the story of themselves. And so the question is, what do you think about Jesus? Who is he to you? The truth is, you can't come up with an answer. It's not an intellectual process. You don't go, oh, I've looked at all the evidence and I think Jesus is this. It's not second hand. You can't be taught. I can't tell you 
who Jesus is and you receive that, every single one of us has to make a decision ourselves as to who we think Jesus is. And that decision has to percolate down into our inner being. And it can't be vague. You go, well, I think he lived 2,000 years ago and he was probably quite nice and uh, I think I'd probably like to hang out with him, but not too much because he sounded a little fanatical sometimes. Um, and he's not mysterious. He's not like some sort of druid who sort of, uh, sort of uh, hangs around magic stones and, and likes sort of uh, gems and uh, um, sort of um, tarot cards. The only way you know who Jesus is is that God reveals himself to you. It's the only way. It is quite a stark thing. When the gospel is presented clearly and, and the, the fullness of Jesus is represented, the Father in our hearts awakens us. These dry, dead, selfish souls that we uh, become so accustomed to. The Father comes in and brings a bright life-giving light of perception, of understanding, of faith and hope and joy. Someone says, this is Jesus. You know, he lived perfectly. He taught wisely. He died on a cross. He rose again on the third day. And now he is sat at the right hand of the Father. And there are people that the Father goes, that's true. And suddenly, we may not understand all with our minds. And let's be fair, Peter got it wrong a lot of times. And his understanding of Jesus' divinity wasn't as perhaps full, theologically full as I would like. But he knew in his heart because God had revealed it. And it's the same with us. That is what makes a believer, is that God has stepped in and said, that Jesus, this is who he is. And through the Holy Spirit, the Father causes us to recognize Jesus, causes us to believe in him, and causes us to confess him out loud, to say, this Jesus is my saviour, he is my Lord, he is my resurrected king. And let me tell you, that moment, it's a heady heavenly moment of clarity it's a flash of eyes opening of hearts realizing of purpose coming home our spirits are reborn and do you know what you can never go back once your eyes have been opened they don't go closed again once your heart has uh, been made live it doesn't rot and die away when God comes into your heart and shows you who Jesus is, that is an everlasting moment of spiritual birth that you cannot escape. Christians over the years have learned to hate church, learned to hate worship, learned to hate scripture, and they have wrestled with what am I going to do, but still that uh, divine spark of revelation and insight hounds their steps because you can't go back. And it cannot be manufactured. You cannot make yourself a Christian. You can't suddenly come up with a chutzpah, oh, I believe in Jesus, hallelujah, because it is something internal. There are Christians here who have never whooped, never hallelujahed, never danced, 
but they still believe in the core of their heart that Jesus is Lord. You can't earn it. You can't spend years and years studying scripture and all the other teaching books. can't read all the books in my library and suddenly come to a realisation of who Jesus is. You can't plan it. God's prodigal, over-the-top, amazing grace that we sung about comes into our hearts and we go, oh, that's who you are, Jesus. That changes everything. And salvation is not about your good works, not about turning up to church, not about turning up to church on time, not about uh, turning up to church early and helping with stuff. It's not about going to all the meetings. It's not about giving your money and reading your Bible and praying and fasting. It is about that moment of clarity that the Father breathes in each of us when we become Christians. It's not about religiousness. It's not about your language. It's not about your dress sense uh, or your behavior. It's not about a vague sense of spirituality it's not about your nice intentions it is nothing woolly it is that moment when God speaks to you and you go yes Jesus is my saviour lord and king and I will follow him forever and this reality this stark reality that in some ways we can't do anything about God touches us and we're either in or out it divides all humanity this is the thing that contrasts one side from the other. We are all lost or found. Each one of us falls into the categories. We're not on the edge. You know, we might get in, we might get not, we're not sure. We're either in or out. We either know who Jesus is or we don't. And uh, it's hard to see the world in that way. But scripture makes it very clear that the whole world is contrasted like lost and saved between found and uh, yet to be found. And so we, as with Peter in this moment, and I really enjoyed Jesus' sort of like rank, uh, racking up uh, uh, the climaxes in it. This changes everything. The moment we see who Jesus is, that changes everything. We are thrust, often against our will, into the ecclesia, into the church. We didn't ask to go into the church. We didn't even ask to know who Jesus was. But suddenly, God interrupts us, and we are thrust into church. And we are part of it, whether we like it or not, if Jesus is in our hearts. And you have to play in your part in this new community. You can be a renegade teenager looking miserable on the outside, having no interest in church, but you are still part of the church. Or you can be the most eager beaver up the front wanting to do everything, and you are part of the church too. It is the confession uh, of Jesus that makes the difference. And the invitation is the same with Peter. Peter... Um, there must have been some peculiar parts of Peter's character and upbringing that meant that uh, that caused Jesus to use him in the way he did. And the same is true for each of us. Each of us are peculiar. Each of us are weird. Each of us are individuals. And Jesus has chosen each of us to participate uniquely in this congregation. Your life stories are uniquely uh, uh, made so that you can help out here. Your affections are uniquely tuned so that you have something to offer. 
your uh, gifts and skills are beautifully unique so that you have something to offer. You may not be able to say, the Gentiles are welcome into the church, because Pete's already done that. But you have something else to offer. Each of us have uh, something to bring to this ecclesia that we have been made to be part of. And it should be something that causes us to go, I'd quite like a purpose. And if you didn't want a purpose, you've got it anyway. And as we marvel at this spiritual rebirth, as we marvel at being included in a community that will worship God forever, we interface with all the different people that worship all the other gods or no god at all, that are groping in the darkness, that are lost and confused uh, and groping around. And I'm going to close with this reading from Romans chapter 10 because as I get older, I realise it's a lot better for me to shut up and to read scripture, I think. And I'm going to read from the message. So if you haven't got that um, version, um, you can sort of check the main themes, but it's, uh, it's, it's a little looser translation than normal. Um, if you've got a, like a digital Bible, go ahead and buy the message because I think it's an awesome translation and it's a, a, another uh, something to be encouraged by. So Romans chapter 10, and I'm going to finish with this. It says this. It's the word of faith that welcomes God to go to work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Say the welcoming word to God, Jesus is my master, embracing body uh, and soul. God's work of doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. You are not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God, trusting him to do it for you. That is salvation. With your whole being, you embrace God, setting things right, and then you say it right out loud. God has set everything right between me and him. Scripture reassures us, no one who trusts God, uh, no one who trusts God like this, heart and soul, will ever regret it. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, I want you to say out loud, I will never regret it. You won't regret it. In the fullness of time, it will be the best decision you ever made. And it goes on. It's exactly the same. No matter what a person's religious background may be, the same God for all of us, acting the same incredibly generous way to everyone who calls out for help. Everyone who calls help God, what do they get? Do they get a snake or a scorpion? They get help. But how can people call for help? How can they call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? And how is anybody going to tell them unless someone is sent to do it? That's why scripture exclaims, a sight to 
your breath away. Grand processions of people telling all the good things of God. Friends, this is you and I, if Jesus is our saviour in our hearts. We are a grand procession of people saying, God has done this generous thing to us. We are coming into Christmas. And it's a moment where people sometimes are a little bit more open to an invitation to hear about the generous things of God. And so I just invite you, remind yourselves again of why you're a Christian. Remind yourself that God brought in that light of perception that you could never have accomplished yourself, that you're never going to regret it, and that there are people all around you, all these people with shrines and sacred spots, with their thin places, and all these other bizarre uh, uh, sort of pagan ideas. And what they really need is the Jesus that you know. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful gospel this is. What a delight it is to talk about you. What an honour it is to hear the story again of salvation. Heavenly Father, I pray that we may continually remind ourselves of the privilege and joy we have of knowing you. That uh, we have, haven't deserved it, but you have given it of your own, out of your own generosity. And Lord God, I pray as we enjoy your generosity, that uh, uh, we would serve in church out of that same heart, out of an excited generosity for what you've done for us. And Lord God, I pray that you would parade us out there amongst all the confused and lost and blind people and that we would have the honour of telling them of our generous God and they too would have their eyes opened and that you would speak into their lives and that they would have a revelation of who Jesus is. Lord God, I pray this in the name of the high resurrected King, the uh, Jesus who walked the earth and who died on the cross and has sat at the right hand of the Father. Lord God, I pray all this in his name. Amen.